Astronauts podcast. My name is Peter. And my name is Reem Hasna. And we'll be your hosts. Here at Gastronauts, we are committed to exploring communication throughout the body with a focus on the crosstalk between gut and brain. We invite speakers in this field to share both their research and their life journeys. So come join me as we explore the steps that go into shaping a scientist on the Gastronauts podcast. Today, we have two great scientists, Dr. Yulong Li and Dr. Michael Crashes. Dr. Li is a professor at the School of Life Sciences in Peking University. He received his PhD at Duke University, where he utilized single molecule techniques to understand the role of specific proteins in neurotransmitter release. He then pursued a postdoc at Stanford University in the lab of Richard Chen, where he developed a genetically encoded pH probe to monitor activity-dependent release of neurotransmitters. And now his lab has expanded on his previous work and developed advanced imaging probes to untangle the exact chemical signals that neurons are using to communicate in specific circuits. And using these probes, Dr. Lee's lab has worked to identify new receptors and neurotransmitters and characterized their roles in specific neural circuits. I'll be introducing Dr. Michael Crashes. He's a section chief at the NIDDK at the National Institute of Health. He received his PhD from the University of Massachusetts Medical School. His work focused on memory circuits and odor memory processing in Drosophila. His lab currently focuses on how the brain brings together information sensed from the external environment and its own internal state, including the memory. Welcome, Dr. Michael, to this episode. I would love to know why both of you have really been motivated to be in the science field. So I know that Michael, I heard an interview that you went into science because of your mother. So why did she influence this? Yeah, so I mean, I think my mom was a chemist and um, was you know, very heavily involved in the sciences and just was always very curious. Um, and I fell in love with biology kind of in high school and then in college, I kind of just messed around and. Um, didn't really get a lot of a, a science background in college. And then kind of after graduating college, I kind of just kind of kicked around for three years before going back to graduate school. And it was really my mom, <clears throat> my mom that pushed me to do so. Um, but again, you know, Scott, who's on this call <laughs> was my graduate advisor, so he can, he can back this up. I really had no idea what I was getting into as far as going to graduate school. I thought I would just go get my PhD, become a professor and be rich that turns out not to be what happens. I, I didn't know what a postdoc was before I started graduate school. In fact, probably not until about two years into graduate school, but it was really, um, you know, being pushed by my mom to at least get into science, but then having incredible mentors uh, throughout my, my career and support from others in the field. I mean, Scott was just wonderful to me and really directed my research. He knew what my interests were. I was actually going to leave and go into industry after, after graduating from his lab, but he kind of knew that that's not where my heart was and pushed me to my postdoc advisor, who was Brad Lowell, who was very big in like the energy balance field. 
and again, just tremendous mentoring by him um, and just the support that I've received from the two of them. But again, you know, people that I, I mean, I can see people in this phone call. I mean, from trainees to, you know, people I've interacted that were graduate students, that were postdocs. I see PIs here, you know, all people whose research I'm so motivated and inspired by. And I think that's what really kind of pushed me to where I am now. And Yulon, what was your motivation behind being a scientist and a person who developed techniques? I think I love to find things out, you know, the curiosity uh, that was uh, sort of uh, with me um, since childhood. Uh, but uh, uh, I was from a small town uh, in China and my parents been quite practical and um, uh, I think my father actually wants me not to go to high school, uh, senior high school, but rather going to the uh, professional school because there, once you graduate, you can find a very secure job just in our small town. And around then, I I just, I, I refused. I was like, no, this small town is so small. You know, 15 minutes biking, you know, from one end to the other end. And so I was sort of... Uh, just you know, thinking I need to go to uh, senior high school and then going to the college. And uh, I think, uh, fortunately, even though uh, my parents are practical and but they all value my own um, opinion, so they respect my opinion. So I, if I decided to uh, go to uh, sort of senior high school and then going through this college entrance exam to apply for college. They say, well, we give our best advice, but if you choose to go to your way, good luck, and they still support me. So, um, so that's uh, part of the the way. But I also found that um, being a scientist or study, uh, including uh, now supervising uh, students, I think um, have some sense of uh, financial stability. Okay, probably not expect to be rich, but at least have some sort of um, uh, enough support uh, will also assure people that they can sort of focus doing research. And you you don't want a career that people are worrying about whether they can go by you know, every day and then still concentrate uh, doing research. So, uh, so I think uh, have a steady and uh, secure support for from grad student to postdoc and also to uh, to uh, faculty, especially junior faculty, uh, will be good. So people can focus on the important part of science rather than uh, worrying about their own living. Yes, I think one of the key things from Yulon and Michael about what they said here was the importance of finding a good mentor, finding a good team of people, uh, whether they have something that you see that you want to do in the future. Uh, whether they have the financial security, it's something that you can look and aspire to be. And that's been really important. And it was a recurring theme from what Lisa had mentioned in the previous episode, just reach out to these people who you really want to be. I have a question for Dr. Michael, actually, of an interest of mine is memory and memory that we make for food. Do you think this memory is created in utero so that the pregnant moms eat different kinds of food and the babies would make memory of what they are eating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a, a lot of th- this kind of uh, these studies have been actually done where the moms, for example, are given exposure to high fat diet, and then that response is then translated down to uh, pops. Um, work from Jens Bruning's group um, has shown this really, really nicely. 
a lot of the changes that happen in the dopamine circuit can occur by just feeding the, the mom the high fat diet. So yeah, I think it actually predisposes the, the offspring as well. So you think our guts makes memory since day zero? <laughs> I do. I mean, I think, I, think, I, I think it definitely is involved. Super interesting, Michael. I have a, a brief follow-up. Uh, one of your previous papers, you mentioned the challenges of using optogenetics to study AGRP neurons in the presence of food. And I was wondering, this optostimulation is just such a, a blunt and like aggressive tool to really activate these cells. I guess this is both for you and you, Long. How can technology be developed and additional studies be performed to more accurately mimic physiologic hunger? Some of the approaches that have been done you know, in the last couple of years have been able to kind of record neural activity and then feed back that activity directly to those particular neural subsets. Um, most of this has been done in the prefrontal cortex or, you know, where you can kind of get a, a large swath of neurons and, and record their activity. And then you can kind of, this is like, I think it's like holographic uh, imaging, but then you can then play back exactly kind of that signal and hopefully induce the exact same behavior that you would see that occurs when animals actually um, perform that behavior. So uh, I think the technology in a way, for example, um, the calcium imaging uh, using GCANs really um, lower the bar for neuroscientists to study the brain, and in a way study the brain's activity. And previously, probably only physiologists or electrophysiologists using sophisticated uh, electrodes that they can sort of detect spiking and then study the sort of uh, activity of the brain uh, with precisions. But calcium imaging and using GCAM, for example, really sort of allowed one to look at, at a single cell type and at a variety of uh, animal systems and some of them that there's just no easy ways to do a sort of a poke electro into the brain. So I think the uh, technology and increase of the uh, the convenience of the tools and the sensitivity of the tools really allow a larger group of uh, scientists, including your scientists, to really assess the uncharted territories. And uh, our uh, neuromodulator sensors, as well as some of the colleagues in the field, uh, is in the same way, is also trying to uh, make the boundary uh, lower to the bar for people to study these important signaling molecules. And I think calcium voltage are those are good, but they are still incomplete. And the neuromodulator with different chemical natures, they, by design, they are quite critical and, and therefore it's important to measure that dynamics. So I have a question along these lines for both of you, actually. So before we make a statement of that, the role of cell type X is modulating behavior Y, we need to make sure that this tool that we are using is repeated, can be repeated by different people and repeated by different labs. So how you go through choosing the tools that you use in your labs and for the experiments, especially with food-derived experiments, it gets harder and harder. Yeah, so... I mean, for, for the first part, like looking at specific cell types, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I can't kind of separate myself from AGRP neurons and moving on from studying AGRP neurons. I mean, I, I do honestly think there's still so much more to discover, but it is a population of neurons that I know if anyone used these tools that I'm using or that the lab's using to kind of activate or inhibit or record from, 
you know, every lab is going to see the same thing. So this is very reproducible. And, and again, that to me is the most important thing about science is that any lab can do this um, and see something similar. And then when you kind of build on top of that knowledge, um, that's how you make progress. Um, and then as far as the tools, I mean, it's true there, there is, I mean, I'm not a tool developer. I'm, I'm one of the people that actually throughout my, my, my uh, scientific career has taken advantage of the, the really smart people that actually developed the tools, whether it was my work in Drosophila, where you know, I used TRIP-A1, which is a heat sensitive way to kind of activate neurons in Drosophila or TRIP-M8, which is, as you know, the menthol receptor, but then it can be expressed in, in flies and we can change neural activity in that manner whether it was Shabiri um, in Drosophila or, or using optogenetics and chemogenetic methods in, in, in mice. I think the idea is, you know, you, you obviously know a good tool when you can, when it's seen in publication after publication after publication. Um, there are a number of tools that, you know, you see once uh, published in a, in a methods paper or, and, you know, I think those tools may, they may or may not work as advertised, but I think the, the tools that you see published the most are probably the ones that most people are using. And there's a reason that they're using them because they work really well and do what they're supposed to do. And again, reliably across, you know, neurons, regardless of what type of neurons or even glial, whatever cells people are working with, but if they're supposed to do what they're supposed to do. And I think that's why people have kind of continually used that. So that's why you see the G-CAMP uh, you see these new sensors that Elong's developing, these grab sensors, you're seeing the D-Light from Tian Lab. You're, you know, these, are, these are the tools that are highly used over and over again um, because of their efficacy for actually working. So uh, again, uh, I think that more people uh, use and as a way they can validate the, uh, the performance of the sensors. So for our group, uh, as uh, Michael Crash said, for example, uh, Lin Tian's group from UC Davis also developed D-Lite, although uh, many use the D1 receptor and we are using the D2 receptor. So the, so the principle actually are sort of uh, corroborated by a different group. And also we share those uh, tools in advance uh, to different groups to test in different scenarios and also get the feedback. And then going through the iterative improvements, Indeed, there's a difference in terms of, you know, the species, the you know, temperature might be different and uh, the the serotype might be different for the uh, virus. So there are a lot of um, parameters that cannot easily just be tested by a single lab. So we, uh, again, we try our best to uh, to validate our own hands, but also distribute to uh, people in different groups to to uh, validate them. And also, I think uh, making tools uh, really test them in vivo is critical. And uh, I love tools and we make them and I admire Roger Chen who make those tools. And there are also a lot of tools published by chemical gen uh, 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 genetics. But I think uh, for neuroscience, probably the most important thing is to test them in vivo, which is more challenging. And a lot of tools, people demonstrate proof principle in culture cells. And for, for my own group, uh, we want to publish since, uh, at least when I was telling my students, we want to have the in vivo evidence and we wanted to work in vivo uh, before we publish this. And so uh, I think uh, that has a higher bar in a way that if you have the in vivo signal to noise ratio and usually in other conditions that it should be 
more robust, for example, in the slides or in culture systems. Yeah, I think a really neat point that Yulong brings up is the importance of collaboration. You have shared some of those sensors with our laboratory, and it's been really great to hear about collaboration. We actually have a question from Daria regarding collaboration. So I am a doctoral student in the Department of Nutrition at the University of North Carolina, and I do sort of translational work in the gut microbiome and diabetes. Um, and I have really a general question for you. I have been involved in some limited research collaborations um, with collaborators in China. And I was wondering if you could speak to sort of the environment that would or would not allow for continued efficient collaboration between China and the U.S., given all of the really great work that's being done in both countries and sort of, I'm wondering how you see this playing out in the future, um, you know, given some of the challenges that have arisen recently. Yeah, I think it's really a good question. Uh, you know, I spent 11 years in the States from my grad school and uh, postdoctoral training. And then I have my own lab in uh, Beijing for more than seven years. I think the scientists are open. And at least for me, uh, I have a very pleasant collaboration with scientists around the world, including a lot of uh, labs in the U.S. I think the geopolitical uh, issues are indeed pose constraints that is certainly uh, worrisome. And there are different cultures and there are different systems. I think uh, one of the ways to have the collaboration could be that uh, laying out the uh, the collaboration in a more open terms that uh, in case and, you know, given to the political competition or issues between the governments. So if the parties can uh, lay out the terms uh, more transparent uh, to start with, that might uh, ease the, the issues. For example, you know, the, what I heard is that, you know, the, especially the Chinese Americans, some of the friends, they worrying about the the government, the U.S. government might, you know, uh, might treat them uh, sort of in a way that they are, you know, export the sensitive information. So uh, at least that's I can think of. And but uh, but generally uh, among scientists, I actually have quite pleasant uh, sort of uh, uh, feedbacks and experience. And also the U.S. scientists that I encounter and interact and collaborate there also worrying about uh, the political environment at my uh, limit. And for them, and some of them they. Uh, they, you know, do the faithful and completing report system to disclose the, the, uh, the collaboration in advance and uh, also uh, timely, and uh, that can sort of uh, reduce the, uh, the concern, I think. So we have a question from Elaine. Hello, thank you. Um, uh, it's a question for um, Michael Crashes. Thank you very much indeed for your really interesting talk. I was wondering though, um, is the overriding desire for high calorific food to do with um, the evolution of survival? Um, so in other words, do we sort of instinctively need to eat more sort of high calorie, high energy food when it's available if we don't know where the next meal is coming from. Obviously, that's much less of a problem 
now for most of us, but you know, for, for the mice and rats that you were talking about and perhaps for humans uh, way back when meals weren't simply available. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you the exact reason for it, but uh, that's precisely how I think about it, is that, is that we're attracted to the energy dense foods because we have just evolutionally conserved to try to go after you know, the most calories for the, the limited time that we have. Because again, we, were, we used to forage for food, you know, so that we were able, and so I think that we try to get as many calories as we can in a short amount of time as we can. And, you know, in particular, fat is really involved in the actual evolution of the human brain. It's why the brain became bigger and bigger as, as um, we evolved, um, was because of the fat um, that we consume from our food. So I think fat in particular um, is, is extremely, you know, attractive to, to us humans. And I think that's conserved. And unfortunately, yes, as you mentioned, in, you know, an obesogenic environment that we're kind of many of us live in now, um, that can have a very um, detrimental effect. Yeah, thank you. Along a similar lines, uh, another question for Michael about willpower and the ability to resist cravings. Yeah, hi. So I'm, I'm Mike Goodson from the Air Force Research Labs, actually. And so it's a question to Dr. Crashes. Some people seem to have more willpower to, to not eat these high density, high energy foods. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that more of a learned response or is that, I mean, how, how do you sort of reconcile those, those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, so I don't think there's a good answer to that. What I will say is that, that mice, just like humans, um, really show a tremendous variability when they are exposed to these high-fat diets. On average, these animals are gaining quite a bit of weight over the, the experimental period where they're exposed to high-fat diet. Again, on average, these animals are completely ignoring the standard diet because now they're just eating the high-fat diet. But in reality, just like humans, you know, there are annoying people that can eat like crap and not gain much weight at all. And what we noticed is that it didn't matter how much body weight these animals gained over that exposure period. We always saw that those animals showed that devaluation for the standard diet, um, both in their home cage and even when we did the experiments where we fasted those animals and gave them the standard diet back, that those animals were still, they still did not want to eat the standard diet. So I do think there, you know, there, there's a number of factors that I'm sure that are involved in the predisposition of, of, of how the body actually reacts to, to like a palatable diet. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out exactly what those factors are. But again, I think it's going to be many factors and working together. So to identify, you know, particularly one of those is going to be really difficult. Thank you. So we have one more question for Michael from Hillary. Hi, my name is Hillary Schiff. I'm a postdoc at Stony Brook University. My question is about how chemosensory cues interact with feeding. So I noticed that the animals fed the high fat diet avoided the standard pellet like right away. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if they use taste or smell cues rather than the post-ingestive cues. And if so, how do those chemosensory cues then like reach and modulate the AGRP cells? That is such a great question. Um, and actually we, we have something that we is in review right now um, because we had that same question, which is basically what role does you know, olfaction play in this kind of rapid preference and then prolonged preference and devaluation? Uh, so the preference for the high fat diet and the devaluation of the standard diet. So we did these gain of function and loss of function experiments where, you know, we 
positioned animals to be able to say smell the high fat diet in their home cage but never eat it so they you know they they can kind of make the association um, of the smell of the high fat diet but they could never eat it um, and they actually never showed devaluation for standard diet so it would suggest that they would have to actually consume it um, it, it smell alone is not sufficient for them to kind of uh, show devaluation. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we actually ablated uh, the olfactory bulb. So we did these bulbectomies. Uh, so, you know, rendered the, the mice anosmic. And even in anosmic mice, they very rapidly made the decision that they just wanted to eat the, the high fat diet um, as opposed to the standard diet. So at least olfaction itself, you know, um, of course we took this reductionist approach, at least olfaction itself doesn't seem to be heavily involved in that process. We were looking to do some experiments on taste. Unfortunately, there's not kind of a really nice knockout model in mice um, for taste, but there are some experiments you can do uh, by emptying, say, the stomach. So emptying the calories before it's actually um, absorbed into the digestive tract um, to kind of look at the role of, of taste. Um, one thing I do want to point out, and I'm glad that I, I can do this in this question, is um, when we published this study recently, another study uh, came out from Zach Knight's lab that was driven by Lisa Butler, who has her own lab now at Northwestern. And what they showed very, very nicely, I mean, we, we also did some infusion experiments where we directly infused calories directly into the gut to kind of bypass this, all the chemosensory information that you're, you're talking about. Um, but I think they did a much better job and they, they went even further to show that it was actually the specific macronutrient of high fat diet is, is the one that's kind of devalued at the level of, of AGRP neurons. And that happens presumably through, through CCK, like the, the signaling peptide CCK in response to fat. So I think, I think there's still questions out there to, to be answered, but at least on, on the surface, uh, what I can tell you from our, our recent work is that olfaction does not seem to be involved in this process. Cool, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. For more of our content, you can follow us on Twitter at The Gut Brain Matters or visit our website, thinkgastronauts.com. The Gastronaut Podcast would be impossible without our incredible team. Meredith is our producer and theme music composer. And special thanks to the founder of Gastronaut, Dr. Diego Bujorquez and the Bujorquez Laboratory.